Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Getting a Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 1st, 2020. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, July 29th, and once again, I'm here with TruthFids, except that today we are going to embark on a new endeavor. Here we have TruthFids with us to discuss a new outline for his 100 Proofs That the Israelites Were White, a video which he originally did nearly two years ago and which he is now planning to improve upon. We have presented and even discussed this material in the past with TruthVids. Now we are going to spend several weeks at least going through his outline and discussing each of his points, which we pray will be another excellent introduction to our Christian identity faith for people that have not yet heard it. As his first, his first publication of his 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white has certainly served that purpose. Hello, TruthFits. Thank you for joining us, and praise Yahweh, and thank you for all of those who are listening. Hello, Bill. Yeah, it's great to uh, be back. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, I hope that it helps bring new people to CI. Um, that's what it's all about, a basic intro for just your everyday person, right? Not necessarily somebody who's incredibly knowledgeable about the Bible or this or that, but something that you could present a friend or a family member who maybe are considering things, you know, from a CI perspective. You know, one of the hardest things is what do you show them? Where do you start? You know, if they bring up a point and you say, oh, go read um, or go listen to Pragmatic Genesis or, or this or Bible Basics, you know, it's, it's always the hardest thing is how, what what do you give them to start with? And and I hope that a hundred proofs would be uh, something, you know, simple and easy to listen to. It could really show them that CI is true and that it's not just fantasy or just a couple of angry white Christians. It, it really does have a true foundation. And, and that's what it's all about. Um, the, the old version yeah, yeah, I actually started on it two years ago. The video was actually about a year ago, but it did take me a long time to compile the whole list. And, you know, when you look at it, you can always improve on something. And you look back, it got a lot of, um, you know, a lot of views. I think it's almost up to 40,000 views, getting close on YouTube. Um, but, you know, uh, a, a lot of things I thought could I could have said better. There are a few flaws here and there. There are a few proofs that now I look back, I shouldn't have included them. I, I could have made better ones. Um, it wasn't completely unshakable. Um, and, and I hope that with this new version that I could eliminate all that and any criticism, any of the trolls that came in and poked around, look for flaws, for holes that they could expose to try and discredit it. I hope to completely shut that down. And, you, you know, like anybody, I'm not infallible. I did get drawn into some of the old British Israel nonsense that I'd like to get rid of and make the whole thing just completely scriptural, completely unshakable. 
So yeah, um, sorry. Do you want to say something, Bill? Well, well, no. That's a wonderful thing. It's it's. Um, I I think I've always said that that um, Christogenia is not really the place to start. It it's not. I I, I never endeavored to sit and teach people that never heard of Christian identity, Christian identity. And, and even though a lot of people have um, found the truth at Christogenia, it, it's a challenge for most people to start there. It, it's not meant as beginner material. It never has been. I, I've taken um, stabs, I, I mean, with Bible Basics, with Sven, with Sven Longshanks, and, and with my Christogenia Bible overview, I, I've tried to take stabs at introducing people in a basic sort of way. But I know that that's not sufficient, and, and it's not sufficient. It, it's difficult to tell where to start with people because it depends on that person's level of knowledge about the Bible and history. And you can't make... Um, a one-size-fits-all introduction to Christian identity to do that. I mean, people that don't understand anything about the Bible and history, where do you start with them or history? Where do you start with them? The 100 Proofs is perfect for that. I really believe that, that the original one was very good, and even though it, it could use some improvement, it was still an excellent introduction, and a very good concept. And to improve on that would be a real blessing. So to, to straighten out like those several issues that you had said that were um, British-Israel fables and, and things that can be undermined and used to discredit us. Because that's the, the, um, the sad part about venues like YouTube. It is... If there's one item in a list that's exploitable, that the trolls use that to get people to dismiss the entire list. And, and that, that happens too frequently in social media. If, if there's one, like one aspect of the next great conspiracy theory that seems ridiculous, the trolls will use that ridiculous aspect, even though... A good amount of the material might be true. They'll use that one aspect to get people to dispose of the whole thing. It happens all the time. So we do need something that's bulletproof. I think this is an excellent endeavor, and, and I'm happy to see you embark on improving it. I think that's a wonderful thing, and, and it's, your, um, it's a good display of your own humility to realize when your work needs to be improved upon. That's just that. That's just a a um, challenge which we all have. Yeah, yeah, I saw that so much in the comments. They would hone in on that one proof and just hammer it away. Like, fortunately, I can delete comments or I can just hide them if they're really trolling. But you know, if if they seem genuine, I would respond and try to explain. You know, the position. But you know, unfortunately, you never know who's behind the avatar or who's commenting right on YouTube. But um, but yeah. Um, so what 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 we could do is go through this series of podcasts, and then I can pile it all into a video, uh, a much better, improved version, 
and then hopefully maybe one day a book as well that people could self-print and share around, right? And, um, you know, also I think uh, I mentioned it on the, the end of our last series, Weissman, that, you know, Christogenia has become a massive archive. And I see all the time people bring up points or they ask you, oh, have you ever done this? And I can see that you're like, yeah, I did that five years ago. I did that 10 years ago. But people don't always know. And if you have 100 proofs and you can, if people are interested on one point, or can you elaborate further, then they can always search Christogenia and see that there's many more podcasts or essays that you've done that back up and, you know, elaborate on that. They expand on it. And they go much more into detail if people are interested, right? It's up to them. Well, well, right. And and Ghost of Kenya also has a, a pretty fairly accurate search tool that even our forum members don't take advantage of as much as they should. Well, which sometimes it disappoints me, but that that's that that's we can't expect everybody to um have all the skills necessary to master everything. It, it's just the way it is. And to present basic building block information in this simple way that the 100 proofs are presented, that that would be a great advantage to us because there's no doubt, if once you understand ancient history, there's no doubt that the Israelites were white. And it can be rather easily demonstrated in many ways, that the Bible is a book which is Eurocentric, and I pray that we can express some of that here as we embark on this endeavor. Yes, yeah, so um, other people have also tried lists. I only found out recently, I think it was about 150 or 200 years ago, there was a guy, I believe he was British Israel, though, and he tried to make a, like a list. I believe it was 30. And then he went back and it was 40 proofs eventually. And I remember reading that the book sold a million copies, but nothing really ever came of that. And I think that was because he had the false premise that it was only the British were Israel, right? And then eventually that evolved, as you've explained many times, into kind of British American Israel, that both countries, uh, and you know, essentially that the Anglo-Saxons were only the Israelites, and of course that has to, has to be corrected. That all the Europeans, the whole race, we're all Israelites, maybe different tribes or mixes of tribes, but we're all essentially one race of people. We all come from Jacob's lines, and you know, the twelve patriarchs, and people need to understand that. And as for the list. It was just essentially, you know, lists of Bible verses that prove that we are the Israelites. But maybe back then people actually read the Bible and they might have had at least a degree of understanding. But there's no chance people will know what you're talking about now. And we, we need to take that into consideration and perhaps explain it better, even if we dumb it down a little bit and go through all the basics give the context of when the verses happened, who said them, you know, who were they, who were the prophets, what was happening at the time, what was the culture like, what were all the surrounding civilizations. You know, we need to give people an understanding, a total understanding, so they can see it and then realize, aha, you know, that they clearly were white, all the races around them were white. And 
also not just only going with Bible verses, but there's so much more that you can show to prove that the Israelites were white. And we have, you know, all the civilizations, all the archaeology that we've uncovered. Our CIA knowledge has evolved and improved so much over the, just, you know, even the past few decades and hundred years. And I think we need to do an updated list just for your average everyday person. Right, Bill? Well, well, right, absolutely. And and British Israel, Christian identity has a very um, speckled past. British Israel was basically seized upon. The earliest British Israel writers understood the connections between the English and the Germanic people, for instance, and recognized the Germanic people as Israelites. But it was a, it it was seized upon by people who wanted to use it to legitimize the British Empire and hatred for Germany because of economic competition and colonial competition with Germany, the prospects that the Germans would be able to compete with the British Empire by making colonies of its own, transportation routes of its own, independent of the British Navy. It, it, it was seized upon and it was corrupted in order to legitimize the British Empire against all the other white nations, including the kindred Germans. So British Israel has um, severe doctrinal errors to this day. And that's the primary one, is the disconnect of the English people from the rest of Europe, which is ahistorical. It's contrary to history and, and the way that Britain was settled and the many kindred ties with Europeans and especially with Germans that are, are easily established in history. And the British Israel people actually reject all that. And they do to this day. They haven't um, had the humility to this day to recognize that the English Empire, first, it failed. It didn't have a commission from God the way that they believe it had, that they would rule over the rest of the earth forever and, and be stewards of the non-white races forever. That's the, the, the um, British Israel idea of dominion theology, and it's failed them. Where's their empire today? That they should have the humility to rethink their position, but they haven't. So we have to correct that. We have to correct those things. We can't stand on them. They don't stand. So we have corrected them. And, and even though they don't recognize it, it's immaterial. Our corrections will stand because they are true. So Christian identity is true, even if in the past various flavors or degrees of understanding in British Israel and in early American Christian identity were wrong. We've corrected that and we can prove it. And it does hold up to history. So to present that to everyday people that know nothing about the Bible or ancient history and to get them interested in ancient history in that context, that that's a challenge. And the 100 proofs is an excellent presentation, as it is even, and tool for doing that. But to endeavor to make it more bulletproof, 
is a welcome endeavor and, and that's a wonderful project. And I pray that we embark on it and, and we're able to finish this and, and that you're able to produce the improved version of the video because it is important. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, um, although it is a hundred proofs, the usual lights are white. I thought, why not along the way also just give slight bits of Bible teaching, you know, here and there explaining that, you know, the Jews obviously are not the Israelites, that they're the descendants of Cain, you know, the Canaanites, Edomites, explain that, as I said, all the Adamic race were white, that all the non-whites are not part of the Adamic civilization. You know, along the way, even though the main point is a hundred proofs, that, that also people kind of gain, gain, gain a, um, a basic understanding of CI along the way, hoping that they'll read, read and listen to all 100 proofs and then really contemplate, you know, everything in the world, realize that most of the stuff we're taught is just outright lies and that they do need to read the Bible, that they do need to repent to God and come back to obeying his basic commandments, right? If if we're ever going to survive in this world. So yeah, and um, I'm ready to start whenever you want, or if there's anything else you will t wish to say. No, I think I think that we should probably um, kick this off. We should probably get started on it. it it's I don't know if we're going to finish. We, we had hoped to finish 10 proofs today. I don't know if we're going to get through them all. But it, if not, then we'll pick pick back up with it in a week yeah sure so so um yeah originally i had one i had um you know the the whole saxons and you know isaac's sons thing and it's a little bit controversial and i thought you, you don't need to have that proof it, it's not necessary to prove that we are israelites you can do a much better um you know, a proof by just showing the simple migrations of the European people, and it should become crystal clear that we are the Israelites. And that's all that really matters, that you can show people, you can demonstrate basic evidence that no, no other race comes close, that no one else has any history that comes out of Israel, uh, except for the evil race, the Jews. But that's another story, right? Well, well, right. The Jews, if we think about it, if, if somebody's vaguely familiar with the Old Testament, they should understand that the Assyrians came in to ancient Israel and Judah, which was already a divided kingdom, and around 740 BC, they began deporting Israelites, and they deported nearly all of the Israelites, and they settled them, and the Bible says it, in the cities of the Medes and around various rivers in northern Mesopotamia. And then they came in and took almost all of Judah. They took all except the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which, which withstood their siege. And they deported them to the same places. And they left only the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the Babylonians came and took away 160 years after the Assyrians had begun to deport the Israelites. So this process began in, in 743 BC 
and and that's a rough figure. It could be 745 or 741. And and it continued through the 586 BC and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And from that time, only 40,000 people returned. And the rest of these people, even though that they, those 40,000, 42,000 people who returned were of the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, the rest of these people ever since then have been called the lost tribes, as they were even in the New Testament. And they were members of all 12 tribes, even though because two and a half tribes, elements of two and a half tribes returned, they were, they were always known as 10 tribes, but it was really all 12 that were deported. And James wrote his epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, not to the 10 tribes scattered abroad. So it, it's, it's, um, it, it's a fact of history that most of the Israelites were never Jews because only those 42,000 people who returned to Palestine in 520, they returned to Jerusalem from Babylon in 520 BC. Those people are the people from whom the, the tribe known as Jews had later derived, 600 years later. Their identity is a whole nother point of discussion because they didn't become known as Jews to the rest of us until they mingled with the Edomites and the Canaanites that were left behind in the land. So they're not really even Judah. But these 12 tribes scattered abroad, and, and that's where we have to focus on in the, this presentation because they are the real Israelites and they were scattered abroad. They were taken into captivity by Assyrians and Babylonians 800 years before Christ, except that there were already people migrating out of Palestine as soon as the Israelites settled in Palestine. And they had migrated and formed colonies in Europe and along the coasts of Northern Africa for 700 years before the Assyrians had taken the Israelites into captivity. So they were already spread across Europe by that time and a good portion of Northern Africa. And there were no black people in Northern Africa at that time. There was absolutely no evidence of any sub-Saharan Africans, because the, the blacks are really sub-Saharan Africans. There's no evidence of any of them being north of the Sahara Desert at that time. And throughout all history, the browning of Northern Africa, the browning of Southern Europe, and many of the islands of the Mediterranean did not occur until the rise of Islam in the 7th century, with the exception of Ethiopia and Egypt. Because Ethiopia and Egypt, and this is verifiable in scripture and in ancient history and in archaeology, Ethiopia and Egypt 
were white until they were invaded by Nubians and became mixed in the 7th century BC. Perhaps the late 8th century BC. That's when Ethiopia and Egypt began to become brown by mixing with these Nubians that invaded and conquered them. And, and we did have black pharaohs, Nubian pharaohs over Egypt for about 75 years during that time. But it didn't last, and the Egyptians eventually overthrew them. They just never ran all of the black blood out. They couldn't. It, it was already too late. And Egypt and Ethiopia were doomed. And even that's prophesied in the Bible. Even that process is explained in Scripture. And it's mentioned in Isaiah, and, and it's mentioned in Jeremiah. In, in Jeremiah, it says, can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? And, and that is a Hebraism. It's a parallelism. The Ethiopian was half white and half black, just like the leopard the Ethiopians of Jeremiah's time. They were already mixed. They had already been overrun. Their women were already raped. And, and the, the, the browning of Ethiopia had already begun when Jeremiah wrote those words, or they wouldn't have been true. Yeah, and um, whenever that takes place, uh, there's always going to be a portion of the you know nation who are going to see what's going on, and then you get the phenomenon known as white flight. And when people get the hell out of there, then it deteriorates very, very quickly as, you know, the, the remaining white population just can't cope with all this mixed blood, right? And then very quickly, the mixed blood's just going to overrun and totally destroy everything there. But, well, um, right. But in, in ancient Palestine, which is actually a pretty small place, it doesn't support, it. it even in the ancient world, when it was lush. And this is another factor of history that we don't really understand. When the Israelites were in Egypt in the 16th and 15th centuries BC, 1600 years before Christ, when the Israelites were in Egypt, Egypt, the, the land was, the climate was a lot more temperate and given to agriculture. And it, it was lush, it was fertile. Arabia was fertile. The Romans called it Felix Arabia, which means blessed or happy Arabia. Today it's a hellhole and a sand desert, and the Bible tells us that it would be. Well, at that time it, it wasn't. It was only called a desert because it was wilderness, not because it was sand. The word simply means wilderness, that the original Greek term that was used to describe it. And, and throughout the scriptures, throughout, throughout the New Testament scriptures, it was wilderness. But it supported flocks and, and herds. All of the land there did. And, and the people of Israel, the ancient Israelites, were an agrarian culture. The entire culture was agrarian. The calendar was built around the seasons and the times of planting and the times of harvest. And all of that is totally contrary to the Jews. But the Jews have done a lot to obscure the truth about the ancient Israelites 
so that they can claim the entire heritage for themselves. When have the Jews ever, got, ever been an agrarian people? And at the same time, when have the Jews ever been a seagoing people who built their own ships and embarked on their own voyages and established their own colonies? The Jews have never done that. In Judges chapter 5, verse 17, we read, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And this is the song of Deborah, which celebrates a victory which they had over the Canaanites. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. The Greeks, when they began writing, in the, and they didn't begin writing until the 7th century BC, they called these people on the coasts Phoenicians. And they were referring to times up to 500, 600 years, 800 years before they began writing. They were referring to times which predate the Trojan War, which was about 1200 BC. And they're referring to these people as Phoenicians. And that's a strictly Greek term. But when the Israelites invaded the land of Canaan, none of the Canaanites were using Hebrew script or Hebrew language, none of them. They were writing in an Assyrian, in a cuneiform script. And all of the ancient, most ancient artifacts of archaeology in the area show that cuneiform script was the, the method of writing of the people who occupied Palestine before the Israelite invasions. And all of the archaeology shows that the Israelites used a form of the ancient Proto-Hebrew alphabet, the true Hebrew alphabet, which was also the Phoenician alphabet. And the Jews have tried to convince us that the Israelites never occupied the coasts, but the Bible proves that the Israelites did occupy the coasts. And archaeology also proves that. Even though the Jews remain in denial and try to insist that the Phoenicians were Canaanites, the archaeology and the Bible together proves that the Phoenicians were Israelites, that Asher did, as it says in Judges chapter 5, continue on the seashore and abode in his breaches. And that word for breaches is a word for ports, for seaports, for places where you could park ships. The Phoenicians of the Old Testament, up until the deportations of the children of Israel, the tribes of Israel, they were Israelites. Now, there may have been some Canaanite slaves because the Israelites, as the Bible shows, enslaved the Canaanites. There may have been some Canaanite slaves who were forced to row their ships or, or to do menial labor or to help build their ships. But the Israelites were the Phoenicians of the golden age of Phoenicia. And that golden age of Phoenicia continued up until the deportations of the Israelites by the, in, into the Assyrian captivity. And even from that time, the Phoenicians of the West, who were in Carthage, 
who were in Iberia, who were in Britain and England, the modern day, I'm sorry, Britain and Ireland, the modern day Britain and Ireland, that they were, they had dominating control of the Mediterranean Sea to the point where the Greeks and Romans could not even go to the Western Mediterranean. They couldn't go there. Their ships would be seized. They would um, all be, all, all the crews would be enslaved and the goods would be taken by the Phoenicians. They couldn't even sail there. And the Romans couldn't sail. The Phoenicians dominated the seas. The Romans did not become a maritime people until they had endeavored to go to war with the Phoenicians in the Punic Wars. And Livy, the Roman historian, describes how the Romans had to build a navy from scratch and learn to, to use the ships just to fight with the Phoenicians. So I'm sure they had some help from Greeks and, and from people in the Eastern Mediterranean that were expert at, at shipping and, and at sailing. But the Romans basically didn't learn or didn't um, put these skills to use for their own military purposes until just before they, they started to fight the Punic Wars in, in the third century BC. So the Phoenicians had the Western Mediterranean, and these are Phoenicians from Tyre, from Palestine. Their colonies had the Western Mediterranean sewed up for over a thousand years. The Bible mentions the ships of Tarshish, and it can be easily established through the translations in, into Greek of the ancient scriptures of the Septuagint. The Tarshish is Tartessus in southeastern Spain, in what was called Iberia. And it was called Iberia because Iber means to cross over. And that's the name of Eber, who was also the, the father of the Hebrews. The name means to cross over. So Iberia was the crossing over of the Mediterranean Sea, and that's how what used to be Tarshish or Tartessus became known as Iberia, because even though a Japhethite tribe had first settled there, and Herodotus mentions Tartessus in his histories as being an ancient trading town, an ancient port town, port city, that even predated the Trojan Wars. As, and that's the context in which Herodotus mentioned it. We see that those ships of Tarshish that Solomon and Hiram had sent out from Palestine were going to southern Spain. And it became known as Iberia. There must have been so many Hebrews that settled there that started calling it Iber or Eber or Iberia that that name persisted and that became the dominant name until it was renamed Spain under the, in, in the Roman period. Carthage was settled by Tyrians from the Phoenician city of Tyre, which was inhabited by the tribes of northern Israel, and that can be established in the Bible. 
according to Flavius, Flavius Josephus, it was 150 years after the building of the temple by Solomon. So Carthage was probably established about 800 BC. And the, the Israelites from the northern tribes of Israel had that connection, that maritime connection, to colonize Carthage and Western Europe because the Carthaginians, the Phoenicians of Carthage, had dominated the entire Western Mediterranean. They had that connection for several hundred years until it was cut off at the time of the Assyrian captivities. Yeah, so you can see that the, you know, everything in the Bible is connected to reality, to, to our history. It's not just a made-up story. All, all these civilizations, you can connect back and look at Genesis 10, and you can look in the kingdom of David and Solomon to see that there's all interactions with, with these races. And, um, you, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the migrations. You also have um, when our, our ancestors came with the Exodus out of Egypt, uh, some went to Greece. Uh, they were called the Danans, and they were led by Kalkol and Dada. And you can look these people up. Uh, the two leaders were descendants of Zara to Judah, well, I'd say princes. that they, they obviously set up royal lines. And, you know, there's many more. You have the Dorians, the Greek Dorians, who became or most famously known as the Spartans. There's a place in the tribe of Manassas territory called Dor. That's why they're called Dorians. Um, you already mentioned the Iberians in Spain, you know, which became Hispania and Spain. And also initially the island was called Hiberia or Hiberia. So also it has a connection with Eba. And then, you know, the Trojans, they came from um, the Zara descendants. Was it? Yeah, Dada, who settled and called it Dardania eventually. And then one of his descendants called Troy set up a place after himself. He named it. And that ended up becoming bigger and more prosperous and more famous than the previous city, Dardania, but that's essentially where the Trojans come. And after the Trojan War, they migrated over to Rome. It's, you know, it's the pretty famous story of Aeneas. So the Romans also were Israelites. And then, of course, as you said, the British Isles, they had Phoenician settlements. And, you know, there's other myths and stories that also go along with that. But then we could also get into the goals showing that the lost tribes they never just stayed in assyria medes and persia but they moved up they migrated over the caucasus mountains and eventually started swarming into germany and that's where all the initial wars you know the garlic wars with the romans and after many centuries eventually the romans would come to dominate them but initially the gauls were causing havoc and um you know even caesar describes how these tribes are just swarming in and yeah, is there anything you want to say over the Germanic tribes, linking them to the Scythians, etc.? Well, well, right. And, and there's always a lot of questions about archaeology. And there were Gepetai tribes in Europe who left us no recorded history for a thousand years before the rise of the Phoenicians, or perhaps 1500 years before the rise of the Phoenicians. 
and, and the Phoenician settlements in Western Europe. So you have um, archaeological relics that are discovered um, in, in Western Europe and in diverse places, but those archaeological remains, those people did not necessarily endure there or last there after the Phoenicians and then the Germanic tribes established themselves there. A lot of those um, archaeological remains are transient. And archaeologists love to identify cultures. And, and they'll find an ancient campfire and a few stone tools and, and a few carvings, maybe some animal horn or, or some wooden carvings. And they'll find these, these relics and, and they'll identify it as a culture. And that didn't mean, that doesn't mean that those people that left that campfire behind or that cave or whatever, that doesn't mean that they abode there and became a civilization or, or a, a lasting tribe or region or nation or principality. That doesn't mean that at all, because we have a clear record of these Phoenician migrations in ancient history, which established... Um, colonies throughout Western Europe that did abide there for many, many hundreds of years. And then we have a clear record of these um, migrations from Asia into Europe by land of Galatahi, Scythians, Sake, Cimmerians. They had diverse names at various times. But before that, Let's um, speak about the Greeks just for a moment, and the Romans. It's established in ancient writings, going back to um, Diodorus Siculus, Flavius Josephus, Hecatahius of Abdera, um, and, and, and even others whom, whom they were citing, that the Trojans came from Egypt and the Danans came from Egypt. And that the Dorians came from ancient Dor through Crete. That can be established. And the Dorians themselves in the second century BC left records attesting their relationship by blood to the people of Judah in Jerusalem in the second century BC. They made that very clear. And it's also found in the Hebrew records in the books of the Maccabees. So it's found in Maccabees, it's found in the histories of Josephus, the um, connection of the Romans who descended from the Trojans, and the Trojans in turn had come to, to ancient, the ancient Troad by sea, and they could be traced back to Hebrews that were in Egypt. The Danans attest in, in, in all of the um, ancient Greek poetry it is attested that the Danans had come from Egypt. The Phoenicians were credited to making many settlements in Greece and bringing letters and, and writing to the Greeks and their language to the Greeks. And the Greeks, when the Greeks started writing, they wrote in Phoenician script. The Greek alphabet comes directly from the ancient Phoenician alphabet, and so does the Roman alphabet, comes directly from the Phoenician alphabet.
that was only used in Palestine by Hebrews, not by Canaanites, because before the Hebrew invasions, it's very clear that the Canaanites had only used a form of Babylonian or Assyrian cuneiform, which is a, a style of writing that's nowhere near the Phoenician Hebrew alphabet. It's not even close. So we have all of these records of these people who came from the east, from Mesopotamia, from Palestine, into or, or from Egypt during the Hebrew captivity there, into Europe and establishing their, their colonies and nations in Europe. And, and the Malaysians went on to, and the Danans both went on to inhabit Ireland in, in the books of invasions of, of the Irish. And, and the Malaysians were considered the royal blood of, of Ireland for many, many centuries. All the kings of Ireland were descended from the Malaysians. So you have the Assyrian captivities and Babylonian captivities of the Israelites that remained in Palestine. And they were settled in along the certain rivers, the Araxes River, which um, at one time divided the land of the Medes from the land of Armenia, which is known today as Armenia. And around the coasts of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And it could be established, and we do that at Christagenia, that the Parthians came from the Israelites that were resettled by the Assyrians on the shores of the Caspian Sea. And the Scythians came from the Israelites who had migrated up into through the Caucasus Mountains and the first country on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains in the time of Strabo of Cappadocia, who was a Greek geographer, who came from an area very close to the Caucasus Mountains. That's Cappadocia. And, and Strabo explained that the first land on the other side of the mountains was called Iberia. There were two Iberias. One was across the sea, because Iberia means to cross over. The other was across the Caucasus Mountains in the area adjacent to the Black Sea, just the other side of the Caucasus Mountains. That was called Iberia until the time of Strabo and Theodorus Siculus, until the first century AD. Why was it called after a Hebrew name if the Hebrews hadn't crossed over the mountains to establish it? And Strabo discussed the relationships, the possibility of the relationships between those Iberians on the other side of the Caucasus Mountains and the Galatahi, which were in Anatolia, with the Iberians in Spain and the Galatahi in France, who the Romans called Gauls. The, in the, if you read through the histories of the ancient Greeks, Herodotus, Thucydides, and then the tragic poets of the 5th century B.C., Euripides, Aeschylus, and, and then you continue reading down through um, the later 
literature of the second and third centuries BC, writers like Polybius and, and get into the first century and, and Diodorus Siculus and Strabo and Livy, the Roman historian. These people called Gauls or Galatahi in Greek or Galatians, these people are related to or come from the Sake or the Scythians. And they're called by these different names at different times. They're not called Galatians in any Greek writings until towards the end of the 4th century BC, I believe. They're called Sake or Scythians before that. Herodotus, I, I don't remember him knowing the term Galatian, even though he did use the term Celtica of ancient France, that Celtica was above Marseille. Marseille, in the time of Herodotus, was actually a Greek settlement. It was a settlement to the Phocian Greeks. Well, these migrations from Asia into Western Europe, generally following the coast around the Black Sea and the Danube River Valley, until you arrive at the Rhine and then follow its tributaries down into France and, and ultimately all the way to Spain. These migrations are, are very clear in ancient history if you follow through those, the, those ancient Greek writers. It's very clear, and, and the changes in the names are very clear. When the first Germanic, and we'll call them Germanic or Proto-Germanic, when the Greeks encountered the first Germanic tribes, they called them, they called them Chimerians. And that's, once you understand the ancient Assyrian and Persian inscriptions, you realize that that's because the Assyrians called them Cymri. And the Cymri are what we, sometimes they're called bit Cymri in Assyrian inscriptions, are what we know from our Bible as the Israelites who were taken out of Israel by the Assyrians into captivity. And this is very clear in the Assyrian inscriptions. It's indisputable that this happened in history that the Assyrians took these Israelites out of Palestine and resettled them in the north and called them the Bit Qumri, or the House of Amri, is how we would translate that into English. But that word Amri that we see in our Old Testament, he was a notable king, so the Assyrians called the Israelites after him at that time, which is historical. And that word Amri is actually, in Hebrew, it begins with a guttural, and it should have been transliterated as Humri. But in the 16th century English of the King James, they dropped a lot of the gutturals. They dropped a lot of them and just began the word with a vowel when it was a name that they were transliterating. And there are many other examples of that. So Cymri becomes Amri in English, but the bit Cymri to the Assyrians in the Assyrian inscriptions, they are the Israelites of the captivity 
that's found in our Bibles. And they were resettled in the north and called Cymry. So the Greeks, in their language, they wrote Kimeroi, Kimeroi, which is what we write in English as Kimerians. And we can prove the connection from the ancient Assyrian inscriptions because many of those inscriptions were written in multiple languages. And there are inscriptions in, in Herodotus, the Greek writer, Herodotus mentions the Amerigian Chimerians who had worn tall pointed hats. I, I believe he used the term Chimerians. And in the inscriptions in Persian, it calls them Qumri, which are the Israelites. And in the inscriptions where they are multilingual and written in both the Assyrian language and the Persian language, they're called Sake in Persian. Originally, the oldest Greeks, like Homer, called these people Chimerians because when they wrote Assyrian, the Assyrian language, which is called Akkadian, was the lingua franca. The Assyrians controlled the world, and their language was the, the language of trade and international diplomacy. So the Greeks called them Chimerians after the Assyrian word Qumri. But when the Persians rose to power, because the rule of the Babylonians was short, when the Persians rose to power, the Persians called those same people Saka. And when you see the multilingual in inscriptions, the same people referred to as Saka in Persian are referred to as Qumri in Assyrian. So the Saka or the Sakins, which was almost certainly later evolved into Saxons, are the Qumri. But the later waves of these people the Greeks didn't call Chimerians because now the lingua franca in the East is, is the Aramaic tongue in the Persian Empire. But the Persians called these people Saka, and the Greeks started calling them Sakins. So when you read the tragic poets or some of the later historians, the Chimerians are called Sakins. But the Greeks continued to call the people that had already invaded Chimerians. I don't know how the term Galatahi came into existence. I only have a theory on it that can't be proven. Homer made fun of the Chimerians. He called them milk drinkers. The Greeks looked down on people that drank milk from their horses or their cattle. And Homer mocked the Chimerians for being mare milkers and milk drinkers. He called them um, galactophagi, which means milk eater in Greek. And, he, and that was a way of mocking them in, in his poems. So this word galatahi may have come from that but it really doesn't start to appear in Greek writings until after the time of Homer. 
And I believe after the time of Herodotus, it might have been the late fifth century or, or, or the late fifth century or the early fourth century that this word Galatahi begins to appear. And the same people that were the Cimmerians, as subsequent waves of them come into Europe from, from Mesopotamia and um, Western Asia or, or Central Asia, because a great number of the Israelites had settled there for a long time, the Masagete and related people that were the Germanic tribes that started to invade Europe, they're called Galatahi by this time, by the Greeks. And the word Sakins falls out of favor. But another word takes its place, and that's Scythians. But they're all the same people. And they're called Sakins because that's what they were in Persian. And they're called Chimerians because that's after what they were called by the Assyrians. And then the Greeks started calling them also Scythians. And the only explanation for that word Scythians, because it does appear in reference to them in Aramaic, is after that word Sukkoth, which basically means a tent or a booth. And all and, and that would be their own word for themselves. That would be from a Hebrew word, if indeed they were from the Israelites of the captivities, which they were. And they were dwelling in tents or booths. And sometimes those tents were affixed to their wagons. They had covered wagons. And that's how they lived. And that's how the earliest Greek historians, including Herodotus, described them, that they had no cities. They had no cities because they were brought into captivity. They weren't given cities. They were just pushed into the northern points of the Assyrian Empire and used as a buffer against any possible invaders. They were just pushed there. So they ended up migrating into Europe from there, Europe and, and Central Asia, from there. So that's how the Germanic tribes were formed. And that's very clear in the ancient Greek writings. Once you understand the Assyrian and Persian inscriptions. That shouldn't have to be disputed. All of the connections are there. It's practically indisputable. When the Gauls, and, and Strap Livy, Livy, the historian of Rome, he was a historian of the first century BC, and he was writing of the time when the Galatahi, or Gauls, as the Romans called them, had invaded what we know today as Northern Italy. And writing about 390 BC, because that's when those invasions took place. And the Gauls came very close to destroying Rome at that time. But the Romans actually managed to drive them off. The Gauls had invaded northern Italy and conquered the people that were known as Etruscans and inhabited a large portion of the land of Etruria. So, the land of Tuscany or, or the land of the Etruscans. So, Livy called them a new and strange people. Livy insists 
that until 390 BC, when the Gauls had invaded northern Italy, that the Romans did not know them. They were strange. They were a new people. And the Galatahi were with all certainty the same Galatahi that had crossed the Bosporus in the second century or the late third century AD, I'm sorry, the late third century BC, and had, a, had taken Phrygia and tried to defeat the kingdom of Pergamus, but they were beaten and forced to settle in the land of ancient Phrygia, known as Galatia. Their ancient Cimmerian ancestors also destroyed Phrygia back in the 7th century. But these Galatians, these Galatahi that came from Europe, are related to the Galatahi that appeared in northern Italy at the very beginning of the 4th century BC and conquered the Etruscans and sacked Rome, but were defeated. So they were a new people to the Romans. Now, you're not going to convince me that the Romans didn't know anything about what was going on north of the Danube, because it's very clear in ancient history that the Greeks and Romans had settlements all along the Danube before the invasions of these Germanic tribes the Galatahi and the Saka. The Greeks even had settlements around the Black Sea before the Cimmerians came and established their presence in what is now called after them, the Crimea. The... Yeah, so you can see, um, you know, all, all these, that the Germanic tribes, although there's all these different names and it can get confusing, once you just look through it, you realize it's all essentially the same people, the same race. And, you know, it's confusing because these were empires who had their own languages. And and, and that's why, you know, it, it can all get confusing and, until you really read it. Um, but, yeah, um, and also the Crimea, that's named after the Chimerians, right, Bill? Yeah. And, and, and also, um, doesn't Keltoi mean um, strange people, uh, which could get shortened down to the Celts or Keltoi? I, I don't, I mean, I know that's conjectured, and there are also certain other meanings um, given to the word Celt, and I, I don't, I haven't adopted any one of them as my own. I haven't been convinced yet, right? So I would just hold it, hold it at that. That the yeah. um, Welsh means strangers at one time to an ancient Saxon. I do know that. And, and that wasn't entirely accurate either because the Welsh are the descendants of the um, earliest British, which were Phoenicians. And the Kimri were the first tribe to successfully, so far as I know, cross over from the continent into England and establish a presence there. And I believe yeah. they came from the Cimmerians. Now, the Cimmerians, we see them in the Crimea, and that's where Homer described them as living in his time in the 7th century BC. And they are later found 
described by, by the later Roman historians as waging wars against the Romans in what we know today is Western Germany. And the earliest Germans, permanent, the earliest permanent inhabitants of Western Germany in historical times are the descendants, the tribes that broke apart from those Cimmerians. And they were the Cymri of the Assyrians, who were the Israelites of the captivity. They were fighting the, the Romans in, in, in large-scale wars in the second century BC. And I'm guessing it it's, might be a little fuzzy to me. I'm guessing about 110 BC, perhaps. And, and the, so the, you have the Galatahi, you have the Cimmerians, and, and the Romans trying to um, subjugate them in, in order to secure their own northern borders. And, and that struggle went on for centuries. But they were the Cimmerians as well. They were also called Cimmerians by the Romans, who took that name for them from the Greeks. Yeah. And, and now we could, um, you know, link all the modern European people, all the countries back to those Germanic tribes. Right. I mean, eventually the Germanic tribes that keep growing and growing and eventually there's not enough land and they start to spread out, seeking new frontiers and new countries and they're going to have their own names. You know, you've got the, the Franks, the Saxons, the Angles, the Frisians, Danes, the Goths, the Vandals, Lombards, Swedes, Jutes. And I'm sure there's many more, but all of these originally were the Germanic tribes, the Scythians, and it's all from those lost tribes. They, they never just vanished and disappeared. They just came under slightly new names and eventually settled uh, European nations. And for example, modern day France is just simply the Franks. And, you know, Britain is a mixture, probably the most mixed of Saxons, Angles, you got the Frisians in Holland, the Danes uh, and the Swedes, obviously the Nordic countries. And then, you know, some of the others, they swept down into Spain and into Italy and North Africa until the Muslim invasions basically, you know, subjugated them and replaced them. But all, all these Germanic tribes are still here. And that's who we are. We are the lost tribes, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. And, and we came in different ways, first by sea and then by land in different times, but they're all the same people. The, the Cimmerian, I'm sorry, the, the Romans were fighting a people known as Cimmerians in the Bosphorus, in the Cimmerian Bosphorus as late as 48 AD. I mean, they were fighting them in Germany 100 years before that, 150 years before that. But they were also fighting people identified as Cimmerians in in the Bosphorus, that's north of the Black Sea, right? That's the northern port portion of the Black Sea. And at that time, what we know is that Ukraine today was still being um, labeled as Scythia. So the, the Romans yeah. called the, the, the Galatahi of, of France Gauls, and they started calling the Galatahi of Germany Germania. Because Germania means authentic. And the Romans saw the Galatahi who made it into France as being um, mingled with the earlier um, Phoenician and Greek elements of Gaul. 
So they identified the Roman, the Galatahi of Germany as Germania to describe them as the authentic Galatahi. In other words, they saw them as being pure and unmixed. So, I, I mean, I'm not to say, I'm not saying that a, a, a Phoenician, a descendant of the Phoenicians who, who marries into a, a family that's descended from the Galatahi, they're all branches of the same race. But from the Roman perspective, you had um, Galatahi, who they saw as being mingled with the earlier inhabitants, and you had the authentic Galatahi of Germany. So they called them Germania, which means authentic. That's how we have the name German. Yeah. And um, the Welsh even call themselves um, Kimri, even even to this day, right? Or I, I probably, um, you know, mispronounced it. But um, just one last thing I thought was worth mentioning is the, the whole Caucasian thing. You know, we identified as white Caucasians and... You know, why is that? And it's obvious that because our ancestors came through the Caucasus Mountains. I know that's not the only way, you know, as you said, they came through sea and some went around the mountains, you know, the long way. But that used to be just a mere fact. Historians accepted that, that there wasn't, it wasn't considered controversial like now where Jews run everything, right? Well, absolutely. It wasn't controversial at all because... Scholars in, in past centuries, and, and I'm talking about the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, they understood that the classical histories, although the classical histories are not um, absolutely true in every single aspect, right? Because men make mistakes, because Herodotus made a few mistakes, and, and Herodotus purposely included some fables in his history for which he's criticized today but that's because the greek word historia means enquiry it meant something different than what we think of history today to a greek and historia was an enquiry it was an inquiry into something and herodotus had um, been going about the Greek world and its environs, making enquiries of the people and recording what he was told by them. So he said himself that he included some things that were fabulous, but he felt that it was his duty to record everything he was told. So Herodotus explains himself, and in spite of the fact that Herodotus is honest in his explanation, he's still criticized for doing it, which is unfair to Herodotus. And even Thucydides, who only followed him by, by a couple of decades, even Thucydides had, had um, criticized him for that. But then again, Thucydides had no problem inventing speeches and putting them into the mouths of Athenian generals. So we do so do we dismiss everything these historians wrote for those reasons? No, we don't, because the facts that they repeated and, and the situations of the diverse tribes of, of Europe that they describe, those things are true. And we can prove that they're true because we have dug out of the ground those ancient Assyrian and Persian inscriptions. Now, 
in the centuries that the that the scholars of Europe were referring to the people of Europe as Caucasians because they understood that they came from Mesopotamia through the Caucasus Mountains and came into Europe. And only the Germanic people can be described. They didn't know when they were using that term Caucasians in reference to us, they were relying on the classical histories. They didn't know that they would be exonerated in the late 19th and in the 20th centuries by these scholars who found these Assyrian inscriptions in the ground and verified it. And when those inscriptions were dug out of the ground, it began with the time that Henry Layard had discovered the ruins of ancient Nineveh and several other significant Assyrian ruins and, and cities in Mesopotamia. And that was in the 1850s. And scholars began to examine and decode those cuneiform tablets. And they could decode the cuneiform. They learned how to read the cuneiform because a lot of those tablets were trilingual or bilingual. And we can know the meanings of Aramaic and even a lot of Persian from modern languages like Hebrew or more modern languages that are known to us like Hebrew or modern Persian or, or things like that. We can go back because these tablets are trilingual and bilingual in many instances and learn those ancient languages. So scholars, it was a 50 to 100 year period and they're still learning things. Orientalists, they're called, right? They're still learning things. Um, it, it was 50 to 100 years before those tablets that Sir Henry, Sir Henry Layard had discovered in, in the ground in Mesopotamia, before they could be taken back to universities in Britain and Germany and America and, and studied sufficiently so that they could be read. That was a long process, but they did it. And, and the results are that we do know that we are Caucasians because we came through the Caucasus Mountains into Europe. We do know that. And it shouldn't be controversial. The Jews want to make it controversial. The Jews do not want us discovering our true identity as the scattered 12 tribes of Israel, which the Bible also proves in different ways. That there are, um, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are prophecies. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, um, the Revelation, Ezekiel. There are prophecies about beasts that rule over the children of men. And it, it's very clear in the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8 the wars between the Greeks and, and, and the Persians are prophesied, um, the, the rise of the Greek and, and Roman empires, Babylonian empire, um, it's all prophesied. The Persian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Greek empire, the Roman empire were all foreseen and described by Daniel in language that once you see the history, 
the language is very clear that Daniel's prophesying the rise of these empires. And it says, and Daniel spoke to the king of Babylon, that he would rule over wheresoever the children of men dwell. And that these subsequent empires would rule over wheresoever the children of men dwell. So if you want to see the world the Bible describes, all you have to do is look at the world which each of those empires ruled over. And this is also little known to history. But the Babylonians, because they conquered Mesopotamia, Palestine, Anatolia, and because the people of Mesopotamia, Palestine, Anatolia had colonies in remoter parts of Europe, the Babylonians actually also ruled over those colonies. And so did the Persians, which followed them. And it, it's a topic that, that's little discussed um, in ancient history, but the Persians who made war against the Greeks, the Persians were in control of ancient Tyre. Ancient Tyre was a subject state of the Persians. And the Persians controlling Tyre would have also had a certain amount of political influence and control over the colonies of Tyre, the most significant being Carthage. It was not a coincidence when the Persians decided to invade Greece under Xerxes in 480 BC, when Xerxes launched that invasion of Persia, that at the same time, the Carthaginians invaded Sicily and made war against Italy, which at that time was called Magna Graecia, because Sicily and the whole boot of Italy was settled and inhabited by tribes from Greece. And they were the most powerful of the Greeks. They were more numerous than the Greeks in Greece. And they were all colonies of Athenians or Spartans, and, and they were allied politically with either Athens or Sparta, who were actually two Greek states that were of different tribes and competed with each other eternally. So the Carthaginians invaded Italy and Sicily, obviously, so that the Italians and Sicilians could not come to the aid of the Greeks when the Persians invaded Greece. And the only way that Persia could have done that was because it did have political control and influence in Carthage, and it did. So the Babylonians and the Persians certainly did rule wheresoever the children of men dwelt, but Persia failed to conquer the Greeks. And then you had the rise of the empire of Alexander, the next empire, which was prophesied by Daniel. And Alexander had political control, basically, of everything from Marseille in France all the way to the Euphrates River. And, and to, the Indi to the Indus River, because he conquered Persia. Then you had the rise of Rome. And the children of men had the, the center of our population and culture had moved further to the west.
by the time of the rise of Rome. So the Roman Empire was centered further to the west, but it still ruled all the way to the Euphrates River, wheresoever the children of men dwell. So look at the areas that the subsequent um, empires controlled, and you'll find the children of Israel, because those world empires were to rule over all of the children of Israel, according to Daniel's prophecies. Yeah, and, um, you know, all the Adamic race were white. And just by looking at that, you can see that it doesn't include Africa or, or you know, China. You know, there's no chinks, there's no niggers. It, it's all, I, I know that um, in like modern, modern Hollywood films, they try to sh make out as though Persians were Arabs and Babylonians were Arabs, but it's clear when you actually read the history um, that they were white, and that if that was wherever the rule, wherever the children of men were, well, how can other races be part of the Adamic race? How can Israelites not be white, right? Yeah, you know, there are um, discoveries by modern, um, I, I want to call them scientists, right? Because they, they, they really are a lot more technically skilled than the average archaeologist or anthropologist that there are that there are discoveries by modern science that ancient greek art the sculptures that survive were actually painted at one time many of them and in fact i would bet most or all of them were painted at one time and they were painted very accurately, and the pigments had been studied, and reproductions had been made of a lot of ancient Greek cultures in their original colors, which they've proven through analyzing the ancient materials. And they've reproduced these colors, and the Greeks were starkingly white, but they're also described as white in all of their own ancient poetry. And they had blonde hair and red hair, and that they were called golden-haired very often in, in the ivory skin. If you look at the poetry of Homer and Hesiod and other ancient Greek poets, the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians were described by fifth century BC tragic poets, Euripides, Aeschylus, as being fair, ivory-skinned, blonde-headed. They weren't Arabs. The Arabization process began with the rise of Islam. They weren't swarthy with dark hair and dark eyes, like you see many modern Arabs and, and, and Greeks and Southern Italians. And, and No, and the Persians were also depicted in, in these Greek works of art as being absolutely white and fair and blonde. And the Greeks knew them up close and personal. They made war with them. Xenophon. Xenophon was an Athenian general and historian who lived from the late 5th century BC to the middle of the 4th century BC. And when Xenophon was a younger man, he was in a Greek army in Anatolia, which had been hired by 
the brother of the king of Persia, Darius III or Darius IV. This is about 406 BC. I'm doing this from memory, so it might be a little skittish, but it's right about 406 BC. Xenophon's part, he's a general in this 10,000-man Greek army that was hired by the brother of Darius in order to usurp him to overthrow his brother. And that brother was the governor of the provinces of Western Anatolia, which is how he got into that position, right? So he hires this Greek mercenary army and Xenophon's a general, he's one of its generals, and they march to Babylon. And at the very beginning of the battle, the brother is killed by the forces of the Persian king. So the whole endeavor is for nothing. And the Greeks are stranded there by themselves. And the Persian king tried to talk them into giving up their arms. Well, Xenophon's a part of this army. And it's called the Anabasis, is the name of this work of literature, which Xenophon wrote, which is a march up, right? It was a march up to Babylon from Anatolia. So the Greeks were on their own, 10,000 Greeks were on their own, and had to fight their way out of Persia to get back to Greece. And they did, and they did it successfully. But they had to take the long way back by heading north. And the winter was much harsher on them than the Persians were. And they lost a few thousand men, but most of them made it back. The majority of them made it back all the way to Greece, which shows, again, how the northern climates were not heavily populated. They never were at that time. Herodotus described in his time, which is a few years before Xenophon, right? Herodotus is writing maybe about 450 BC. And he described how north of the Danube River, Europe was virtually uninhabited, except for a couple of tribes that had come from the region of the Caspian Sea. And Herodotus describes and names those tribes. Well, well, he said that north of the Danube, it was virtually uninhabited on account of the cold. And the cold killed a couple of thousand of those Greek soldiers with, that, that were with um, Xenophon in, in Babylonia and had to get back to Greece. But they took the path of least resistance. They took the long way and they headed north and, and came back along northern, uh, along the north coast of the Black Sea in order to get back to Greece because it was safer. They, they would have less people, less men resisting them, less armies resisting them. And, and it was a long, hard, cold trip and a lot of them died. They couldn't inhabit the north on account of the cold. So there's all sorts of records of that, that for a, for a great time, the interior of Northern Europe and, and Central Asia were uninhabited. Men couldn't live there. These theories that our race, our Germanic race sat in the ice and picked their noses for 30,000 years before coming south, that these theories are, theories are all harebrained. They're absolutely harebrained. You need, in order for us to survive in Canada or, or in the north of Scotland or, or in um, 
in in any typically cold region, the Scandinavian states, you Iceland, you need an infrastructure and you need a, a long time of peace and, and building that you are definitely going to leave a footprint footprint of when you pass. And there's absolutely no evidence that a substantial amount of population dwelt above the Danube River for any long length of time, 30,000 years, 10,000 years, 5,000 years. There's no evidence of that. There's all the yeah, historical... That's just all Jew nonsense, right? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely Jew nonsense. There's no infrastructure left behind to prove that we survived in that cold for any long period of time. There's tons of evidence that the climate in Europe has fluctuated from, from more moderate, like it is today, it's more moderate or temperate, to extreme cold, that it's fluctuated. And some of those fluctuations last for a thousand years. So people were able to make settlements there, but when it became cold, they had to retreat south. They didn't stay. They didn't have the technology and the infrastructure to survive those long periods of cold. And we see now, right now we're going through a warming period in Northern Europe and Northern Scandinavia, and they're discovering things that the Vikings had built during the last warming period, which was in the 12 and 1300s. And, and then yeah. we had a cooling period. And, and that's why um, the age of exploration in, in the north, that, that's why the Vikings had to stop sailing. They had to stop their long voyages because it became too cold to make it to North America and back in one summer. They couldn't do it, so they had to stop. And, and the, the um, exploration was picked up by the, by the nations further south in Europe. That didn't have to deal with that Arctic cold. So we've had these fluctuations in the temperature, in the climate of Europe, that in the time of Herodotus, he could not understand how men could live above the Danube River and survive. And in the time of Xenophon, the Greeks who took the northern route suffered for it greatly, trying to get back to Greece from Babylonia, that it was too cold for them. They couldn't survive in it. You could say that they weren't prepared, but it, it was simply known that men didn't go that far north. So prepared or not, Herodotus couldn't imagine people living that far north, except for a few tribes that he said had, had he inferred had recently come from the Caspian Sea. And, and it's clear that there was a warming trend in Europe that enabled the Germanic tribes to inhabit Germany but not until after the 4th century BC when they began to migrate that far north. I would say that was part of Yahweh's plan, right? He, he chose the time when, when he would let it happen. Absolutely. But you could see the warming and cooling trends in history yeah. to, to a great degree in the ancient histories. Yeah. All right. Should, should we move on to the next point? Well, well, yeah, that's about all I have. I, I mean, I probably said way too much. I'm sorry. <laughs> but let's look at, I just want to get one other scripture in. 
Sure. And and this is Jeremiah chapter three, right? And Jeremiah is writing about 620, 640, 620 BC is when he began writing. I'm not sure exactly when, but he wrote for years. He prophesied for several decades all the way up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So most of Israel is already in captivity, but not Judah. Only the, um, well, the large portion of Judah that was taken off by the Assyrians. They're all already in captivity when Jeremiah wrote. Um, The inhabitants of Jerusalem were left behind. So Jeremiah is one of those inhabitants of Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 3, and the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel, Israel that was all taken into captivity, right? Has justified herself more than treacherous Judah, meaning the portion of Judah that was left in Jerusalem, that they were even more sinful than Israel, right? Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return thou, backsliding Israel, saith the Lord. So it, it's that this is a prophecy, and it's not to be understood literally, except that, because Israel never did return, right? They returned to God in Christ many centuries later, and that's a matter of prophecy. But this is to make an example of Judah that Yahweh is saying this. It's not to really call them back, because they're not coming back. Anyway, return proclaim these words towards the north and say, return, thou backsliding Israel. So we see where the children of Israel are in captivity in the north. And and this is constant. It's constantly recognized by the prophets where they had gone to. So the Bible upholds this all throughout the scriptures, right into the New Testament. Paul of Tarsus said that his hope was for the 12 tribes of Israel, and for that reason, he brought the gospel to Europe. He didn't bring it to Africa. There's no epistle of Paul to Chinamen or or to Mandingos or Hutus or Tutsis. There are none, And, and there's not even an epistle of Paul to the Egyptians, and there won't be. And there wouldn't be. If Paul had a 10,000-year ministry, he would not have written an epistle to the Egyptians or to any other non-white, non-European. That's all I have to say about that. Now we can move on to your next point. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's all right. So, yeah, um, number two, it was mostly the laws of God everywhere in our white civilization. Even, you know, the, the pagan civilizations, from the Scythian Germanic tribes, obviously they weren't, you know, perfect and they weren't as good as our Christian laws that came later on once we fully Christianized. But you can still recognize many of the laws that come from the, you know, the biblical laws, the old kingdom. They were completely opposed to the many of the perversions that the Jews always push, such as, you know, homosexuality, bestiality. They were against usury. Um, Generally, they tried to mix within their races, right? I mean, they were generally opposed to race mixing, although, you know, being up in the north, there wouldn't be niggers around that they had to worry about it. But um, all the ancient laws like Scandinavian laws, German, Germanic laws, Anglo-Saxon laws, you can read it and you can see clear similarities that these were 
the biblical people. Right, Bill? Well, well right. That's absolutely true. It, it's um, First, law is instilled through a culture from parents to child, from parents to child, from parents to child. This is good. That's good. That's good. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's evil. Don't do that. It's wrong. Laws are transmitted through the generations. When, when Paul told the Galatians, speaking of the Galatians and himself, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. He was talking about the Galatians and the fact that their ancient ancestors had the law. They understood the law and that that had been transmitted to them down through the centuries. They knew what was good and evil through that, um, that cultural inheritance. So today, even though the average white European does not go to church, he still knows that it's morally wrong not to steal. It's morally wrong to steal. It's morally wrong to sleep with your neighbor's wife. It's morally wrong to kill somebody. They know that through that cultural transmission that has always been with us. And Paul commended the Romans for that. Now, you might think, well, how did Hebrew laws or anything that the Hebrews considered moral get to Rome? Well, the Romans had ancient ancestors among the Israelites that they're, the Israelites were their ancient ancestors, and, and that is found in, that there are traces of that found in the classical histories. But I believe when I did my commentary on the book of Acts, and also in my, um, my presentation on Christian identity, what difference does it make, and some of my commentaries on Amos and Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, especially. I listed um, five, I believe, classical Greek sources who in ancient times, all the way back to the fourth century BC, had recognized Moses, the Moses of our Bible, as a great man, one of the lawgivers one of the preeminent lawgivers of the ancient world, and as the founder of colonies and civilization. They recognized Moses for those things, not just civilization in Palestine, but colonies in Europe. And this is in the last, the volume 12 of the Loeb Classical Library of Diodorus Siculus is, is one place to find this. And, and Flavius Josephus is another, that the laws of Moses were widely known at an early time. And, and it's almost certain that Greeks copied, copied from them and, and that Romans did ultimately also because the Romans supposedly got their laws from the Greeks, according to Livy, the historian. They copied the laws of the Greeks called the laws of Solon, Solon, S-O-L-O-N, Solon, I don't know how you want to pronounce that, um, who was a famous Greek lawgiver, but he was a late, he was relatively late. He was long after Moses. And the Dorians, having come from 
Palestine, it's not incredible to imagine that the Athenians and most of the early Greek writers and, and Greek culture expressed in surviving literature is Athenian. It's not extraordinary to believe that the Athenians were familiar with the Israelites. There were Athenian mercenaries in the Babylonian destruction of the first temple, according to the Greek lyric poets. The Athenians were very familiar with the Israelites and the ancient Babylonians. So, I mean, there's been a cultural transmission of um, ancient Hebrew literature throughout the Mediterranean that, that's very clear in a lot of ways in ancient writings, even if they didn't make quotations and, and reveal sources for things. It's very clear that there was a cultural transmission there. And there was a cultural transmission in the people themselves, who even though they didn't bring copies of the Old Testament with them, they nevertheless understood the laws of the Bible and the moral laws of God through their the, the cultural transmission, the cultural inheritance they received from their ancient ancestors. And we can see that, yeah. that phenomenon Sorry. all throughout history. Yeah, and I was just going to add um, the common law we have today. You know, it's completely based on the Bible. The fact that, you know, you can't, if you're going to be accused, you need a witness. You get a jury, you know, things like that. And the greatest nations have always had the strongest laws. I mean, America, the, the greatest, most prosperous of all nations, that certainly had the biggest, um, you know, had a whole Christian constitution. The founding fathers, they, you know, absolutely believed in the Bible law and they believed as long as people obeyed the law, you know, nothing can happen to their nation, right? Even... I'm not going to call him an anti-Christian because he really wasn't anti-Christian. He was anti-church, and, and a lot of the founding fathers were anti-church, but they were still Christians. Now, one of them claimed to not to be a Christian, but to be a deist. It is Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine is often used by atheists as the model for American founding fathers, but it's not true. He shouldn't be the model because most of those men were Christians, even if they weren't churchgoers or despised the church. John Adams actually despised the hypocrisy of, of the church church leaders and, and, and the pastors of his time. And he was correct. He was right. I'd have been right there with John Adams. Well, well he was still a Christian. Well, Thomas Paine, he had said that in America, we have no king because the law is king. And he was referring to the law of God. And that's very clear in his writing. I don't remember exactly where he wrote it. I, I quoted it and cited it and said where he wrote it in, in several podcasts, maybe 10 years ago. But Thomas Paine said, we don't have a king in America because the law is king. Referring to the law of God. Because... Colonial Americans believed in the law of God. And, and that manifestation of the rule of law and society founded on the rule of law rather than on the tyranny of and, and whims of one powerful individual, which is might is right, right? 
the phenomenon of the rule of law is a Christian phenomenon which proves our identity with the people of the book. And that is true. It does. Because none of the other races have that concept. Only the white races had that concept. In, in all of the other non-white nations, might is right. And the whims of a tyrant, the whims of the prevailing tyrant are the law of the land. Not so in Christian nations. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. And, and the task of Adam was to bring order to the cosmos, right? To, to the world. To, and that's wherever you go in any white civilization, that's what you see. You see some kind of a society and it's completely absent in all the non-white countries. I, I know that in the past hundred years that the you know, uh, white businesses, you know, generally disguised as white, but run by Jews, they've went out and kind of industrialized all these nations. So it can be deceiving if you look at, say, Japan or Dubai or, you know, a lot of the Middle East or even China with all their factories. You know, you look and you think, oh, they must have always been that way. But that's not so. If you go outside into the, you know, non-cities, you, you really see what they're like. And, you know, especially now with um, online uh, videos, which now and then you can see little snippets and you see how horrific they are, that they're, they're not at all like us. And even, you know, if you said many times they hate the law, they, they see it as oppression. They, they don't like, uh, they don't respect the law like we do at all. Right. And uh, as soon as white leave their neighborhoods, it all just completely collapses. So how can any of these people be the Israelites of the Bible? How could any Israelites be non-white? It's just impossible. Well, well, right. I mean, the establishment of an agrarian society it is a white phenomenon. I mean, yes, you have some blacks in Africa that managed to plant some beans and and vegetables and, and grow that they can never subsist. They were never able to survive as an agrarian society. In fact, Zimbabwe, when it was white Rhodesia, and all the way through, even when it became Zimbabwe and whites kept control of the agriculture, it was a major food exporter among African nations. And as soon as Mugabe took the farms off the white farmers and turned them over to blacks, it became a welfare case immediately. It went from producing many times more food than it consumed every year to requiring many times more food from outside than it can produce. And now they want the white farmers back because they can't feed themselves. Agriculture. Yeah, that's basically every black nation where they've taken back over in a nutshell, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. Agriculture and the organization of agriculture and husbandry are skills that only whites have. They don't have it in China. And, and the only reason why there are so many Chinese today and so many Japanese today is because they've had white technology and white organization organizational skills have been transmitted to them. So they're able to subsist, but the Chinese still, they still don't um, 
engage in animal husbandry at a point sufficient to sustain their populations. They still don't. So they loot and pillage the world's oceans. They, um, they, they constantly violate treaties having to do with harvests from the ocean. They constantly violate those treaties in order to pirate food from the ocean. And, and to, that they will eat everything in sight and when everything's gone, they will eat each other. They have no moral prohibition. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of them, they, you know, obviously I would never advocate that Nomites are smarter than us, but there are Nomites who do have a degree of intelligence enough to, you know, potentially that they could be like us if they actually had the moral foundation, you know, the spirit of Yahweh in them. They don't have that and, moral you know, spirit. There's many, Sorry? Right. They don't have that moral spirit. They don't. They um, never did. Go on. I'm yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, um, sorry, um, I remember reading uh, many books on China and he was, you know, the author were just astonished how they always turned on each other, no matter what. And you can see when you bring them over here, as long as they're on their own, they can be good businessmen. Uh, as long as they're on their own, they're not you know, fighting amongst themselves. But as soon as they go back, like a few of them, and try and form a business, they just can't do it. They always turn on each other. It only works in a white society with white laws protecting them. Right. The, the, um, the rule of law and the understanding that certain rights are inviolable, that they come from God, and therefore men cannot... Um, restrict other men from those those certain basic rights all those things are, are a white construct other races have never had anything like that and, and could never thrive without white intervention right now these other races that appear to be thriving are only thriving because of the technology and organizational skills and laws imposed on them by whites in the colonial period. And, and today those laws continue to be imposed on them or they would not be able to um, operate in a global marketplace, right? They would be shut off. So they have to play along in, in order to enjoy the fruits of globalism. And they only cooperate so far as they could satisfy the international banks and corporations because they know where their bread and butter comes from. And that includes China. If they didn't have to satisfy international banks and corporations in, in order to profit, they wouldn't care about law at all. And, and the Chinese, well, they skirt it every single time they can. And, and the Africans, they're a whole nother story. They just hate it. They hate the rule of law. That, that's the whole basis for the, um, that, that's the real demon behind all of the demonstrations today is that they want to upset and overthrow the rule of law because they hate it. The Jews hate it. And, and it's Jews behind the whole Antifa movement and it's Jews behind Black Lives Matter. And they're exploiting that to destroy Christianity, to break down white Christendom. And they hate 
the rule of law. They want to see it obliterated so that we can go back to the law of the jungle. Actually, so that we could suffer a new Bolshevik revolution and the Jews come into full control. Yeah, where every Jew has a thousand slaves, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but um, The fulfillment of the yeah, Talmud. Yeah, and then we could talk. Oh, sorry. The fulfillment we, we of, could briefly of the go Talmud. On, um, I'm sorry. That the Jews do not practice uh, Old Testament laws, that they're actually, it's all just a complete farce. They're the ones introducing all the perversions and the race mixing, everything that is completely contrary to the Bible. And, you know, the whole usury thing, uh, biblically, it was to prevent foreigners coming in, borrowing, and then taking over a nation. It was never the opposite to Yahweh didn't send them, um, you know, send the Israelites out, you know, go infiltrate a nation, set up a bank, implement usury, and subvert it and take it over. That's that's what the uh, the wandering vagabond uh, descendants of Cain did, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. And and the whole Talmud, the, the Talmud is really their religious book, and, and the whole Talmud, all, all of the commentaries on the law in the Talmud are actually providing excuses to get around the law. That's all it is. It, it's a book of evil. It's absolutely contrary. It disputes with Moses from beginning to end. It's a disputation Kind of like Moses. they can pretend to be Israelites, but get around the law. Right. Well, where do you see in, 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 the, um, in the Hebrew Bible, in the scriptures, where do you see anyone waving a chicken, a chicken over their head in order to put their sins on the chicken? But that's what Orthodox Jews do. They do it every year in Tel Aviv, in New York City. They get truckloads of chickens and the Jews stand there in the streets and say a prayer while they're waving a chicken over their head. And then they throw the chicken away into a bin and it gets taken off to the dump. Probably sold as meat in the supermarket, Leo. Yeah, right. Well, that's a possibility too. That that's more likely. But but yeah, that's that that's where's that biblical? That there's a lot of practices of the Jews that are anti-biblical, and and their engagement in in child trafficking, um, pornography, in organized um, scams. Constantly, they're constantly being busted, these rabbis, for Medicare scams, for organ transplant scams. They're just a gang of crooks and criminals. And their house is divided against themselves. That's how any of them ever end up in prison. But that's all they do. Yeah. Yeah, and I even, uh, just, just Brazil quickly, uh, I remember reading something where a, a guy wrote on Brazil, and he was astonished, the whole concept of marriage just doesn't exist a, a nigger will sleep with a negress and be with her for a few days and then he'll just never see her again and that the whole country is just a nation of you know um single parents if, if they even bother to raise the kids but that's what's but happening that's just how here. it is is that they don't care about each other or have any kind of families it's just completely foreign to them that's what's happening here it's the same jews that have pushed against the traditional family structure here and have always sought to destroy it. And today, kids in college, they don't think about getting married. They only think about hooking up. And they hook up with somebody of another sex or, or the same sex. That don't even matter anymore. What sex they are doesn't even matter. In fact, there's more than two sexes. There's an unlimited number of genders now. You could be anything you want to be. 
and, and people just hook up. And if it's another guy, another girl, uh, uh, some something somewhere in between, they don't care. They hook up and, and they'll hang out together and have sex for weeks or months and they'll unhook and hook up with somebody else. There's no such thing as marriage. They've been trying to destroy it. They've been trying to do everything they can to destroy the institution of marriage. And, and with that, they've destroyed the, the institution of the family and all the traditional, um, the family being the building block of the nation, all of the traditional views of the family have been eradicated. Now a family could be two daddies and three little niggers. It could be anything, chimps, people, any combination of genders. It don't matter. If they live together, they're called a family. Yeah, and um, when you look at the big picture, it's just um, the complete opposition of any law, any order, as you said, the, the fallen angel rebellion against Yahweh. That, that ultimately, I mean, you know, if you focus on one thing, you not, might not be able to see that. But when you step back and look at it, that's what essentially it is, right? Well, well, if you read, yes, it's it's absolutely what it is. The Jews are the offspring of the fallen angels. They are the offspring of devils. And they have promoted these things in our society from the very beginning. Their own fallen society, that's why they're fallen angels, their own fallen society fell because of these things. And, and they still promote them amongst us today. They are not the people of the Bible. They are actually the descendants of the devils who have perpetrated these sins in society from the beginning of time. If you read the journals, if you read the philosophical journals, the psychological journals, and, and all these um, so-called studies that, that have led to the breakdown of Christian values in modern society, you will find that Jews were behind all of this. Jews were the, behind the, the um, promotion of pornography. Jews were behind the promotion in society and the acceptance of what they call homosexuality. Jews are behind the, the um, right now, they're behind the softening and acceptance of pedophilia. There's going to be no end to this. And now that we accept gay marriage, next, they're going, going to do their best through their psychological studies and, and things like that, science, to get us to accept pedophilia as a new norm. It might be 10 or 20 years down the road, but it's we're already on that path. So when does it yeah, end? And, and then... What what's next? You know, you identify as a horse or, or a dog and, you know, then it's bestiality. You know, it's no longer just multiple sexes. It's animals as well. You know, there's no end to just how crazy it gets when they take get full, full control. Right. Jews are, have been behind the immigration push in every white nation. Jews have been behind the denigration. And I'm not saying the churches were good. They were never right but they were a lot better than what we have. Jews were behind the denigration of churches and Christian religion in every white nation. So they've been attacking and, and, and successfully attacking our culture, history, and religion 
And they've been doing this ever since the French Revolution and, and the time when they were emancipated. So this has been going on. What we see today is the result of 250 years of Jewish treachery against Christian society. And as you have in your third point here, all European countries and nations were Christian. And that wasn't a mistake. That didn't happen yeah, by accident. If, that didn't sorry, happen I'm because... I just going to say, if Christianity is part of the Bible and only one race is Christian, then who are the people of the Bible? Sorry. Well, well right. No, that's true. It, it doesn't matter how many thousands of missionaries you send to Africa for 500 years and they're still not Christian. I mean, yeah, you could probably point to a few black Africans as, as an example of Christianity in Africa. As soon as the whites pull out, they lose their Christianity within a generation. Within one generation, it's gone. Within 10 years, it's gone. They're not Christian any longer. They're right back to their savage ways. Europe didn't need the, the people of Europe didn't need 500 years of missionaries to convert to Christianity. It only needed one generation. And Christianity took root and stayed in Europe and didn't leave until eventually all the tribes of Europe and all the nations of Europe were Christian. And that process took a thousand years. But that's because the migrations of Germanic tribes and the Slavs who followed on their footsteps, that didn't stop for a thousand years. It was a thousand years before the nations of modern Europe began to form. The Slavs were, the, the, the Slavs were trying to overrun the, the German Empire of Otto I in the 11th century, maybe the 10th century. It was only a thousand years ago that the Slavs had finally settled into the homes that they occupy now in Europe. It was only perhaps 1,600 years ago, not only, I'm sorry, 1,400 years ago, that the German, Germanic tribes settled into the homes that they now occupy in Europe. So it took Christianity a 1,000 years to um, for all of Europe to become Christian, but that's because the people didn't, the tribes and the people were still in, in a fluid state until a thousand years ago. But as and Europe you also developed, had the persecutions of the Romans, right, that held back Christianity, and against all odds, Christianity prevailed, even though people died for it. It well, you know, they'd be put to death if they believed in it, and. On these non-white countries, we come over, we conquer them or colonize them. We teach them Christianity. So there's no resistance at all. And as soon as we go, it's gone. So it's right. the complete opposite. Exactly. That's exactly true. Christianity does not persist among them. Unless it's being financed and imposed from the outside. <clears throat> and that's true even in China. Even Christianity in China is financed from the outside. Yeah, and then um, many of the early, you know, when the Germanic tribes finally started to get together, it, it was generally a Christian monarch who united the country. You know, like England wasn't England until Alfred the Great. He had to fight the pagan Danes 
to, you know, truly unite and, you know, put his sword where his mouth was. He had to remain Christian and he Christianized it. And Charlemagne, you know, with France, he made it Christian. I know a lot of, um, you know, pagans, this modern pagan thing where they hate Christianity and they say it was forced on them. That's a lie, really. Um, it was only little pickpockets here in Europe that truly refused to remain Christian and they kept raiding into the Christian nations. That's the only reason they got finally fed up went okay you know you want to play that game and went in and forced them to christianize but most of scandinavia and germany they did it freely out of their own will right well well right this idea that the german people were forced to be christians it is well, well it's simply wrong the saxons were holdouts and that's because the saxons had, had um only recently come into western germany they were holdouts and Charlemagne forced Christianity on them because they were looting and pillaging the neighboring white tribes. They, they were a constant source of distress to the Franks the, the Franks were, um, Charles Martel was a Christian. Christianity was, um, had, had permeated among the Franks and prevailed among the Franks for, many centuries up to the time of Charles Martel. The churches were established in, in France. When the Moors had invaded Spain and then crossed over into France, and Charles Martel, against the will of the churches, took their gold, took their money, so that he could hire soldiers throughout France to go and defeat the Moors, which he did. The churches hated him for it because the churches, the organized churches, they were cucks back then too. Romanized Christianity was always cucked. They always cared more about money and riches than they did about their own people. That's just a sad fact, but it doesn't come from Christianity itself because those Roman priests were all pagans. They were pagan priests who because Christianity could not be stopped, they begrudgingly became Christian priests. And, and that, that can be demonstrated in a lot of different ways. But Charles Martel was a better Christian than, than the churchmen. And he defeated the Moors. But while he was defeating the Moors, the Saxons, the Saxons to the east were looting and pillaging the villages of the Franks. They had to be dealt with. And Charlemagne was Charles Martel's grandson, I believe. He finally dealt with them, defeated them, and forced them to, forced some Saxons, not all Saxons, to convert to Christianity. Ultimately, all the Saxons converted to Christianity. And most of them were not compelled. Most of them did it voluntarily. Under the Christian Saxon king Otto I, Germany had, had, had a great um, renaissance period. Germany became a great nation state under Otto I, the Holy Roman Emperor. Otto I, in turn, defeated the Slavs. The Slavs, some of the Slavs were forcibly converted to Christianity because they continually harassed the Germans, the Saxons, 
by the Teutonic Knights in the 13th and 14th centuries. I believe the 13th century. So there were times when some tribes in Europe were forcibly converted, but most tribes in Europe voluntarily converted or converted when their kings converted, as you explained. The first Christian kingdom was established in, in England in the second century. Christianity was in England in the first century. The Goths, many of the tribes of the Goths, had accepted the Aryan form of Christianity and converted to that, the Alans, the Goths, before Rome. Before the Romans accepted Christianity. Ultimately, the Romans had to accept Christianity. They had no choice. There were so many Christians in, in the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire. They had to accept it. So they accepted it, but they accepted it in a way that they could control it. And the Council of Nicaea and, and subsequent councils were all about the empire controlling Christianity. And out of that... Yeah, and where do you see this in any other race? Where do you see, you know, Christian kingdoms in China, in Asia, in Africa? You just don't see it at all anywhere. Uh, how can any other race truly be the Israelites? That They would have to have been white, right? Right. Uh, unless I mean, the Bible was for Israel and then another race. But, you know, Yahweh just failed and some other race just picked it up along the line. There were um, Christian nations. There, there were um, large pockets of Christianity at one time in Central Asia and the Parthian Empire. But they were eventually obliterated by the rise of Islam and the coming of the Mongols and, and other circumstances similar to that. So eventually those Christian nations, which were white, I mean, Central Asia was white at that time. Parthia and Persia were white at that time. And, and that's one thing I think I forgot to mention earlier was Xenophon had marveled over how white the skin of the Persians were, how white they were, because the men typically remained clothed and didn't become suntanned. But you can't say that about a naked Arab you can't marvel about how white a naked Arab is or a modern Paki. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah, you get that, um, what do you call it, the farmer's tan where the face will be tanned, maybe the hands, uh, you know, on the white person. And then if a guy takes his T-shirt off, you're baffled. Well, you're, you're so white and pale and you, you realize if somebody works outside, that's what you expect. But... With an Arab or a Paki, it's just going to be the same color, right? Right. So, so there were pockets of Christianity, but they were in, in, in the East, but they were white nations in the East at that time. And when those nations became non-white, they became non-Christian. They converted to Islam or, or to Buddhism or to whatever. They became yeah. non-Christian. Yeah, and um, every new nation that we founded, um, you, you know, like the New World, like America, um, th th they've always been Christian. America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc. There's never been a group of whites who've fled and set up a new religion, a pagan religion. It's always remained Christian, always. 
And when you look at the percentages of Christianity, it's always been in the 95%, 97%. So it wasn't just the majority were Christian and there was this 40% who were secretly uh, holding on to paganism and waiting for the right time. Like I've heard some crazy pagans say that, that they were just living under the oppression of Christianity, but they weren't really Christian. You know, all these people, they really believed it, that they truly believed it. Yes, there were different denominations. That's another story, you know, Catholic, Protestant, but they all were fully Christian. And, you know, it's only through world jury have our nations gradually slid, slid backwards, as you said, backsliding Israel, right? And it's the exact same scenario. The Canaanites gradually corrupted our old kingdom, and they've done the same here, you know, spreading all these non-Christian religions. They're behind it all, all the perversions, all the decadence. It's all the same race. So how can that race be the people of the Bible? It's very clear. We are the Israelites. No doubt. It, it's... We we've and and we'll start speaking of that when we get to our next point. But there's no doubt that we did what we did because we are those lost sheep, whom Yahweh said would be reconciled to Him, and that reconciliation happened in Christ, and it wasn't an accident, because we could prove that we are those people through ancient history and through those inscriptions. Yep. All right. Well, we thank you. To, um, we made it through four? three points. We, we, but we're already way over two hours. Oh, okay. Do, do you want to leave it here then? We should probably begin with point four when we return next week. Yeah. Okay. That's no worries. I really enjoyed today. I hope that um, you know this really elaborates for people who watch the video, but they want more. Obviously, in the video, I can only do like a one-minute snippet of a point, and it's always just going to be a very brief summary. If you're going to make 100 points, you know, you can't really make a video over two hours because people just, they don't have the time for that. But hopefully, if they download the podcast, they can just listen to them gradually and get a much greater source of information, you know, much more in-depth with these podcasts. And I really enjoyed them. Thanks, Bill. Well, thank you. And and I really did try. I, I really did hope to get through 10 points today, but I, I'm <laughs> sorry. I, I, I can just run my mouth about the early history all day. It, it's to me, it's important to get some things across if you're going to discuss this so that it is irrefutable. I, I mean, I know you can't do that in a hundred point video. But I, I just have to do that if I'm going to discuss it. That's what I do. So that's what Christogenia is. And and now, hopefully, people that will listen to this version of the 100 points, that they, they will come to realize that it's true. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Brilliant. Thank you. Praise Yahweh and the God of Israel, the God of our race. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.